You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, so we're here with uh, Mr. James Banford, and Mr. Banford has written a number of books um, focusing on the National Security Agency, The Puzzle Palace, Body of Secrets, A Pretext for War, which is about, obviously, the attack on Iraq, and The Shadow Factory. Uh, Mr. Banford, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Could you just please tell me a little bit about your background and how you got interested in the NSA? Uh, Well, I was in the Navy during the... Uh, Vietnam during the 60s and uh, for three years. And while I was in the Navy, I was assigned to a unit that dealt with uh, intelligence. And uh, when it was in Hawaii, it was actually Pearl Harbor. And uh, so I learned about NSA while I was there. And uh, I went to law school. After I got out of law school, I was less interested in practicing law than uh, becoming a writer around the same time, there was a um, large investigation of the intelligence community. It was called the Church Committee uh, after Frank Church, the senator who was running it. And I testified before the committee as a whistleblower because um, one of my assignments discovered the U.S. was uh, eavesdropping on, on U.S. citizens. So, and that was while I was on a reserve duty while I was in law school. So that got me very interested in writing a book about NSA since there had, there had been a book on NSA and it had a very interesting history. And uh, that was pretty much what drove me to write it in the first place. And then since then, I've been you know, a, writer, a writer and a journalist uh, doing other books and working on documentaries and for ABC News and so forth. Yes, and of course the joke w- about the NSA was, I think they called it No Such Agency, but I believe it was established in uh, 1952 by President Truman, if that's right? Uh, that's uh, 53, I think it is, yeah. And I, so it could be 52, yeah. I, I, it's one of the two, yeah. And what I was interested in seeing is that, the, um, I, I think you bring out, even um, before they were doing the intercepts of the telephone calls after 9-11, the old NSA, uh, the prior to 52, they were reading telegrams, and they were sort of, the telegrams were kind of like the old-fashioned emails of the day, it seems, when the NSA, when the pre-NSA agency was reading those. Yeah, they did that ever since the end of World War II, uh, right up until the mid-70s. There was a program called uh, Shamrock, and... The whole idea was to uh, secretly eavesdrop on all the telegrams coming in, going out or going through the uh, the country, and um, that was sort of the email of the day. Um, So it was all illegal. There was no uh, authorization, no warrants or anything. 
but it was very closely held. There were very few people at NSA that knew about it, and uh, it lasted until the uh, church committee that I just mentioned uh, discovered it in the mid-1970s and uh, became a large scandal. Um, the director was called before the Senate Intelligence Committee, and from there on, there was a, a large amount of um, attention paid to trying to prevent NSA from doing that kind of thing in the first, in, in the second place. And, and one of the things that was created was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which has been getting quite a bit of attention lately. Yes, exactly. Um, could just to give our viewers an idea of uh, listeners, this the size of the NSA, um, the Maryland headquarters is something like seven million square feet, seven hundred police, tens of thousands of people work there, the equivalent of thirty-seven thousand libraries of Congress. I think you say. I mean, just it's just an unbelievably big uh, agency and building, isn't it? Yeah, it's an entire city basically. Uh, it's hidden from the road; you can't really see it from the road, but. Um uh, it's behind all kinds of fences and barbed wire, um, um, anti-tank devices and so forth. It's very well protected, but it is a, basically it's an entire city. It's somewhere around 100 buildings and uh, 35 miles of road. Um, like you said, they, they want to have their own police department, their own fire department and so forth. So it's the, uh, it's, the largest intelligence agency in the world is far bigger than the CIA, CIA or any of the other intelligence agencies. So, um, yeah, it's very massive and very secret. And they have a, a huge data facilities in Georgia. They're building a, a one million plus square foot facility in Utah, I believe. So it's it's not just that building; they're all around the country, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah, they finished the one in Utah. It's, uh, that's the. Uh, sort of the equivalent of the NSA's um, external hard drive. Um, it's a huge building uh, full of all kinds of uh, 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 servers and so forth, and, and then there's a lot of uh, fiber optic cables that go from there to NSA headquarters and a lot of the other NSA facilities around the country. And so that's where all the material gets stored. So when satellites pick up, uh, eavesdropping around the world, um, uh, it all gets stored there in Utah, Bluffdale, Utah, this large million square foot building. And then the NSA has these other facilities around the country to do analysis uh, in Georgia, Texas, um, um, Hawaii, and, and also in Okay. And Mr. Barrett, just to go over some of the past activities you mentioned in your book, um, The Shadow Factory, I think you said they failed to breach the Soviet code until the 1970s, the late 1970s. Is that correct? Uh, pretty much. They, they, I think they were, well, they were able to, to break it until the 1949, from the end of the Second World War until 1949, and then there was a... Uh, um, somebody who became a spy for the Russians inside the NSA, and he gave away the secret. So then that made it very difficult for the NSA to break the Russian codes uh, uh, from then on. It had little success uh, occasionally. It did have some success in the 1970s, uh, but it was never as good as it was uh, during the uh, late 40s. 
Right, and they monitored U.S. citizens. You mentioned, I think, Jane Fonda in your book, one of the people they were they were monitoring, I assume, illegally in that case? Yeah, that was all part of the um, Nixon administration's uh, uh, attempting to uh, go after anti-war protesters. Uh, the NSA was used for that. The uh, NSA was given this uh, watch list of People, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock, um, um, Joan Baez, uh, um, a number of other people, uh, celebrities who uh, were suspected of being um, uh, conduits for money from uh, foreign sources to U.S. anti-war groups. And um, the NSA was, again, used illegally to spy on these people, not just telegrams, but telephone calls also. Right. You also one of the failures you also mentioned is they missed the Indian nuclear test in the late 1990s. I think 1998, they failed to predict that. I think you mentioned as well. Yeah, I mean they have had quite a few failures, and that's one of the major problems. They, especially when it comes to terrorism, they missed the first World Trade Center attack uh, in the early 90s. So when the World Trade Center was attacked the first time, they completely missed that. They missed the uh, attack on the USS Cole in the late 90s. They, they missed the attacks on the U.S. embassies in East Africa. Um, and obviously they missed 9-11. Uh, the director uh, first found out about the attack on 9-11 uh, on his television set in his office. So <laughs> uh, with all the money that goes into NSA, that they haven't had a very good uh, record when it comes to um, preventing terrorist incidents. You also mentioned an interesting thing where they were monitoring terrorists in Yemen, and one of them came to the U.S. What pre-9-11. They didn't pass that on to the FBI because of a turf situation. They didn't want to give the information to the FBI, essentially. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things that actually led to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, the NSA uh, discovered that these two um, uh, agents of Osama bin Laden were going to Kuala Lumpur, uh, the, the CIA went there to try to um, see what they were doing, and they lost them in uh, Kuala Lumpur. Um, they flew to Bangkok, and then they flew to the U.S. And uh, all this time, the NSA had been eavesdropping on their phones. They picked up their uh, phone calls uh, in, in uh, Yemen, and then when they went to California after they came to the United States. They went to San Diego, and they began calling that um, the same facility that they were working at in uh, in Yemen. They were calling it about once a week or so, and the NSA was picking up those phone calls. Uh, the 9-11 Commission uh, determined that, that they were actually picking up these phone calls going from this house and in uh, this apartment uh, facility in San Diego to the Bin Laden's uh, operational center in Yemen, and yet uh, never passed that information on to the uh, FBI or anybody else. Right, and exactly. Yes. So that was one of the most uh, critical blunders of the 9-11 attack. One of the things you mentioned in your book, I don't know if it was an NSA or someone else, it was the idea of basically staging a fake attack ostensibly from Cuba on the United States as sort of a pretext, as an excuse for war by the United States against Cuba. Do you remember who, who's, who, whose idea that was? Yeah, what happened was uh, after um, they had the uh, 
Bay of Pigs attack. Uh, Kennedy administration had the Bay of Pigs attack, which was uh, the U.S. I mean, um, uh, or it was basically uh, uh, a, a U.S. supported and U.S. trained uh, guerrilla fighters who went into Cuba to try to overthrow Castro and take over the country. It was uh, run by the CIA, sponsored by the CIA, um, after a year or so of planning, at least a year or so of planning. And it was a total failure. Um, the, uh, uh, the mission it was a total disaster. They were, many of them were captured and put in jail. So after that, the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided that they would try to come up with a plan to take over Cuba, get rid of Castro, either capture or kill him, and similar somewhat to uh, to Iraq. Right. Uh, go in there and, and uh, um, have this attack and capture or kill Castro. So um, the problem with that was that uh, there was no nexus for it. There was no, no uh, raison d'etre. I mean, there was no uh, reason that the U.S. could uh, use to justify that since Cuba wasn't attacking us or anything. So the Joint Chiefs came up with this plan. It was called Operation Northwood uh, to uh, uh, make it look like Castro was launching attacks against the United States, and that included uh, uh, phony acts of terrorism in the United States, actually shooting um, uh, one of the uh, plans was to actually shoot somebody on the street and bring Castro forward. Another one was to, if the uh, rocket that was going to carry John Glenn into space on the first space mission, if it happened to accidentally blow up on the launch pad, they were going to plant evidence trying to show it was Cuban sabotage. And there were a number of other these crazy operations that they came up with to try to uh, uh, create a pretext for the U.S. to go in and invade Cuba. Uh, so the, all the Joint Chiefs signed off on it, including the chairman. And uh, they took it to the Secretary of Defense, who was McNamara at the time. And uh, I got the files of, of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, found his files in the archives, and it looks like what happened was he went into the Secretary of Defense's office with his plan and basically got thrown out of the office uh, because it was so ridiculous, and the chairman got, his name was General Lemonster, basically demoted. I mean, he was taken out of that job and sent to Europe to be head of NATO, which was a demotion, so... That's the idea was really outrageous that they, they could actually come up with this, but what was so astonishing is that all the members of the Joint Chiefs could actually sign off on that. And uh, uh, luckily it, it stopped uh, by the time it came to McNamara's office. It's, it's exactly what the Germans did w with Poland as a pretext for war, too. They, they said that German troops were killed by the Polish. They had some dead bodies, and the, they staged a fake attacks and used that as an excuse to invade Poland. So it kind of reminded me of that. Um, if I could just go to the USS Liberty, just because you've written a lot about that, Mr. Bamford, and obviously that was an NSA spy ship off the coast of Israel, 1967, the Six-Day War. It was monitoring how uh, basically Israel was doing. And it, I, I believe it was not in a location that was closer to Israel than I think it was supposed to be. But basically, the allegation is that Israel directly attacked the ship because, A, they were doing war atrocities, and, B, they didn't want pressure from the United States to uh, force them to 
and the attack. They wanted to consolidate their gains. And you've written a lot about that. Could we just get into that? I mean, obviously, that was a ship. It was flying the U.S. flag, I believe, correct? Yeah, I mean, there was no secret about the ship. It was uh, flying the U.S. flag. It said uh, USS Liberty on the back. Right. Uh, it was identified uh, in James Fighting Ships, which is a standard reference for ships around the world uh, back then and also today. You just look up the U.S.'s Liberty, and it says it's a technical research ship, which translates into an intelligence ship. It had a big satellite dish on the back for bouncing signals uh, 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 back to um, Washington and so forth. And and uh, it, was on, it was in international waters. It was uh, at least 13 miles uh, off the coast of the Sinai, which uh, when the actual um, legal limit is 12 miles, so it was in international water. And that's what the U.S. has been doing all over the world. Send these ships uh, uh, off China or off Russia or Korea or whatever, and they'd be in international waters. Uh, so they sent them off um, to, uh, during the Six-Day War, uh, 1967, uh, to see what was going on, basically. They wanted to eavesdrop and find out... Um, uh, basically, whether the Russians were involved in this at all. Okay. Uh, they weren't really there to target the Israelis. I think they only had one at the most. The Israeli Lindus on board. It was mostly to see what the what the Russians were involved in helping Egypt. So uh, they were attacked by uh, uh, totally out of the blue on a very clear day. Uh, the Israelis had done uh, reconnaissance over the ship several hours that morning, and it, like I said, it's very easy to see. It had a huge American flag on it. It was sailing very slowly. Uh, you just see the sailors on board wearing U.S. uniforms. It said U.S. Liberty on the ship. And yet, um, then it was attacked by Israel uh, about 2 in the afternoon, I think it was, uh, a daylight, the clear day out. Uh, they had a number of fighters straight to the ship, uh, shoot up the um, communications equipment so they couldn't call for rescue, um, and uh, then they dropped napalm on the ship, uh, which led a lot of fires, killed a lot of people, and then uh, they had, I think it was four torpedo boats come up and uh, fired torpedoes into the ship. Uh, I think three of them, three or four of the torpedoes missed, but one of them hit dead center. Uh, right in the, uh, the side of the uh, the ship, and that killed uh, about 30 uh, people instantly. Overall, I think there were 34 people killed, 190 wounded. It was a huge um, assault on the ship. The ship uh, began listing the, the uh, crew members' uh, uh, abandoned ship, and then the Israelis started shooting the, uh, the life rafts. So there was no excuse for any of this, and, and um, the uh, U.S. did very little. They, they basically, uh, the Johnson administration uh, uh, asked for repatriation of uh, some money for the cost of the ship, since the ship was totally destroyed, and that was about it. There were no uh, serious investigations into it, um, and that's why... So many of the crew members have been very angry for all these years. They lost 
friends, and, and uh, there was never a serious investigation by the U.S. into why the Israelis did it. But uh, I interviewed the director of NSA, uh, who was director at the time, Marshall Carter, and the uh, other senior officials there, and they all uh, believed it was a deliberate attack. And Mr. Barry, am I right? The reasons that you say because they they were because Israel was doing uh, potentially war atrocities and during the war. And number two, they were doing well. Well, that was the, uh, the speculation. I mean, the problem was unlike uh, when the uh, USS Cole was attacked off Yemen, where we sent the FBI over to investigate. We never sent anybody to investigate. So all you could do is uh, speculate. But those were two of the most logical speculations. One of them was that uh, the Israelis didn't want the U.S. to know that they were going to uh, go into the uh, Golan Heights, uh, in other words, expand the war, uh, and also they were uh, committing uh, war atrocities uh, on the uh, Sinai at the time, killing Egyptians, uh, uh, unarmed uh, Egyptians and so forth, and then burying them in mass graves. So there were a number of things that they didn't want the U.S. to know about. Um, and so that was uh, one of the potential motivations. Uh, like I said, there was such uh, uh, revulsion about actually having an investigation um, for domestic political reasons, so largely. Uh, so there never was a serious investigation, and, uh, and today the uh, crew members are still, you know, hoping that at some point somebody's going to actually look into it. Was an NSA spy plane listening to communications? And I understand when the NSA eventually, when the ship called for help and an aircraft carrier sent some planes, that's when they broke off the attack. And that was one of the other reasons they thought they were listening to the communication. Is, is that right? There was a, uh, a U.S. Navy reconnaissance plane, um, eavesdropping plane that was overhead. And it did pick up a number of uh, signals at the time. Um, and uh, I can't remember the exact sequence of what happened uh, at that point. Uh, that, that Actually, a lot of that came out after my book was written. Um, but, again, those are the things that really is taking years and years to actually get the NSA to release some of this information, and and that's uh, why I think that there there really needs to be a definitive answer. Okay. Uh, you know, they, the, the Israelis did some uh, sort of half-baked... Uh, uh, investigation into it themselves. The U.S. got a copy of their investigation um, where nobody was ever fired, uh, uh, demoted, or court-martialed, or anything. And the deputy director of NSA wrote on the top cover of that uh, that supposed uh, investigative report um, a nice whitewash. So, uh, and the director of NSA thought it was a delivered uh, uh, attack. The director of the CIA uh, uh, thought it was a deliberate attack. Actually, everybody thought it was a deliberate attack that was uh, had any knowledge about it at the time. So yes, so let me, if I could, Mr. Baffert, turn you on to another subject to go to your book, Pretext for War. Could you please? You wrote a very well-received Rolling Stone article on John Rendon. Could you please explain who who he was and how he helped to sell the war, the war in, in Iraq? Yeah, John Rendon ran a a uh, small, little-known company called the Rending Group, and uh, it was basically a public relations uh, and media uh, type of a group. Um, 
the U.S. Uh, uh, at the time of the uh, first Bush administration, at the time of the um, Panama, when uh, the U.S. Uh, forces went into Panama, they hired the Renin Group to try to um, create sort of positive uh, publicity about the raid. Um, so then uh, when the U.S. decided to, uh, uh, when the um, Gulf War came up, uh, they were used again, uh, this time by the Kuwaitis. Um, so then uh, after the Gulf War, the Bush administration was looking to um, develop a way of creating a overthrow of Saddam Hussein. This is obviously before the decision was made to um, invade the country. This is in the mid-90s. They're going to look for ways to have the Iraqi government overthrown. So the way they were going to do it was to get these sort of rebel groups together, uh, uh, bring them all together, train them, and then uh, maybe have a... Uh, an overthrow of the Saddam government. So that was the idea. They would hire this company called the Renin Group, who would go in there and pull all these disparate uh, Iraqi uh, groups that were against Saddam Hussein, pull them all together, and and try to create a uh, uh, a force that might be able to oppose and overthrow Saddam Hussein. So it was actually the John Rendon, uh, an American businessman, basically, who the CIA secretly hired um, uh, to go into Iraq and formulate a, uh, a coup. It was the first time the U.S. has ever hired a private uh, individual to create a coup in a foreign country. Okay. So he uh, pulled them all together and created a uh, organization uh, called the Iraqi National Congress and put a guy named Ahmed Chalabi in charge, and that was what they uh, tried to do. They tried an overthrow. It didn't work, and then eventually uh, the U.S. had the invasion. Now, now, Mr. Benford, is it is it your view that it was neocons like Richard Pearl who kind of pushed the Iraq war to essentially help Israel in the end? Is that that's what you people have said that basically is your thesis? Is that one of your views? <laughs> yeah, it's not just my view. I mean, it's, it's I think it's uh, general, uh, generally accepted now that the uh, neocons, the neoconservatives, they were the ones who were pushing this all along. Richard Pearl was a key member of the uh, the neo neocons, and uh, they were the ones who were, were most uh, pushing the uh, war for a war in Iraq. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's not something I came up with. It's just sort of general knowledge at this point. Does Bush, in the end, though, bear responsibility as a president and as someone who probably may not have known the difference between a Sunni or a Shiite or the fact that the British had picked the Sunnis when they withdrew from Iraq after basically artificially creating the country and someone who avoided service in Vietnam himself and the, the Champagne Squad and, you know, with Lloyd Benson's uh, son? I mean, is Bush, in the end, more responsible than any of the neocons or, or was he manipulated by them and by Cheney, basically? Well, I think it's a combination of all that. Uh, uh, the neocons uh, for a decade had wanted to had wanted to um, um, have an overthrow of the Iraqi government of Saddam Hussein. They were the ones pushing uh, Ahmed Chalabi the most, and uh, 
Uh, but nobody was really taking these people seriously until 9-11. And then after 9-11, um, the CIA uh, told Bush that it, this was done by Osama bin Laden. Yet at the same time, um, I mean, this has come out as, uh, in the 9-11 commission report. At the same time, um, uh, the Secretary of Defense uh, is writing down on a notepad, uh, notepad uh, let's see how we can bring um, um, uh, Iraq into this, uh, Saddam Hussein into this, and so that was the idea that even though there was no evidence that Saddam had any uh, involvement in it, they tried to, to show that, uh, that he was involved in 9-11, and, uh, which is total nonsense. Exactly. So. Um, and that was, uh, that was one of the justifications they tried to use. The other justification was that the uh, um, Saddam had uh, all this leftover weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, and all that, which nobody was ever able to show. Uh, the UN said we've never been able to find this, and we're still looking. But instead of waiting until they finished their investigation, uh, Bush pushed ahead with the war in in Iraq. Ended up being a total blunder. They ended up finding afterwards that there never were any weapons of mass destruction. It was the one of the worst, the worst uh, uh, foreign policy blunder, war blunder in U.S. history. Uh, all these people died uh, uh, for a, uh, an operation that was based on lies and, and uh, uh, nonsense. And it strengthened Iran, ironically, our enemy. So it ended up being a, a negative in every way, you could argue, I guess. Just turning to post-9-11 right. post activities, Mr. Manfred. So as I understand, um, Hayden did cooperate with you, the head of the NSA, t after 9-11. Is that correct? He gave you some cooperation um, in your books? Yeah. He, uh, well, uh, uh, yeah, before 9-11 and after 9-11. Before 9-11, uh, uh, I did a book before 9-11 called... Uh, a body of secrets about NSA, and he cooperated with me on that. And then after 9-11, I uh, did another book. Uh, 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 well, actually, after 9-11, I did uh, two books. I did one on the Iraq War, uh, and I did interview him for that. And then uh, I did another book called The Shadow Factory about NSA. And I, I don't think I interviewed him for that one, but I interviewed him for, for the War. Now, basically, after 9-11, the NSA ignored essentially almost the rubber stamp FISA court, which, which approved something like 99% of everything they were asked to approve. And they asked the phone companies directly for information. And basically, the phone companies decided to cooperate with the NSA. Um, is, is that basically correct? Yeah. Uh, the... NSA went went to the <coughs> excuse me. The NSA went to the uh, phone companies, uh, AT and T, and asked for their help. And they uh, cooperated without ever any. Uh, there was never any warrant. They never asked for any warrant. They, uh, I think, the U.S. Uh, said, "Don't worry about it. If anything happens, we'll protect you or whatever." Um, so they. Uh, the tel uh, telecom companies cooperated, even though the uh, cooperation was technically illegal at the time. And you mentioned in your book, obviously, in the, um, in the Shadow Factory, the Tuckerton, New Jersey, access point to Europe. I think it's a something like 9,000-mile loop of fiber cable. It goes from the U.S. to all over Europe, then all the way back. And that's one of the areas, I guess, they use to put these devices on that monitor this data. I mean, 
in, in like places like Tuckerton. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, they're called uh, uh, cable heads. They're where the cable uh, comes into land, and where the cable comes into land, there's a, um, a building. Uh, what they actually do, um, it's easier to explain it on the, on the West Coast, uh, to have actually been there and seen it. Um, the cable comes uh, into the, well, there's a number, there's probably about five on the East Coast and three or four, maybe five or something on the West Coast in terms of international cables coming in and going out of the United States. So when a cable comes in from, say, uh, Europe, it, it'll come into Tuckerton. And if a cable comes in from Asia, it will go into uh, California. So um, the cable goes under the ocean, and then uh, when it starts getting near the shore, it, it's buried under the sand. It goes to a building, um, uh, like the one on the California coast, goes to a, what they call a cable head building. And from there, it goes uh, several different places. The largest place is in San Francisco, where there's a 10-story building. Uh, it's called a switch, the ATT switch. It's where all this communication comes in and gets diverted to where it's supposed to go. So in that building, the NSA, uh, like uh, we just mentioned, got, had got cooperation. And so in the building, they built a small room, a very, very secret room with a combination lock on it and so forth. Um, and uh, in that room, they put uh, a lot of, what they call deep packet inspection uh, equipment. In other words, equipment that looks deeply into communications. And so when the cables now come from overseas and then go into that building, um, there are fiber optics and uh, fiber optic cables that get split, and then um, the technical way of doing it, uh, you split the cable, and then uh, you create two identical uh, cables, basically. And so the uh, one of the cables goes off where it's supposed to be going, all this email and telephone calls and so forth. Then the duplicate one goes one floor down below into the secret room where all the eavesdropping equipment, the DPAC and inspection equipment is. And so that way, um, and then that equipment sort of automatically looks at all the communication, telephone numbers that are being uh, the email addresses, the content of the emails and all that. They're looking for names and uh, email addresses and trigger words and uh, telephone numbers and all those things. So these are it's all computerized. They're all looking at this stuff at speed of light as it's going through. And if there's, you know, communication that doesn't have any, is not suspicious in any way, it just keeps on going or just... Um, there's no real register of it down there. But if if there is a communication, like if I'm if James Bamford is uh, on the watch list, then that communication, whether it's an email or a phone call, will be kicked out, and somebody from NSA will then uh, get access to it and listen to it or read it or whatever. So right, you. Um, I think that's, you, how, that's how it works. I think you call this. Um, you say the surveillance industrial state, kind of like the way Ike warned against the military industrial state. You mentioned the surveillance industrial state, and you mentioned all the money people like Booz Allen are getting by facilitating these, basically these operations. Um, Six hundred and fifty million intercepts a day, I think, was one of the numbers I read. Is that basically like there's a lot of private contractors who are obviously getting wealthy from cooperating with the NSA and helping to facilitate this? 
Oh yeah, there, there's a it's an enormous amount of uh, private industry that's involved in this. Uh, prior to 9/11, NSA didn't really outsource very much of its eavesdropping at all. Um, I mean, it was had a very normal budget for a normal intelligence agency. After 9/11, it had this enormous budget. You know, money was just sort of poured into NSA, and with all that money, they had more money than they could hire people for their facilities at Fort Meade. So they hired all these uh, contractors, all these uh, uh, companies like Booz Allen and Lockheed Martin and uh, um, a lot of big companies and a lot of small companies that nobody ever heard of, uh, sort of mom-pop companies. So they, they ran the gamut of, uh, of uh, small little what they call Beltway Bandits companies, small companies around the Beltway of Washington to giant companies, uh, Booz Allen and all that. And it's an enormous, uh, enormously profitable uh, uh, industry for uh, a lot of big companies. Could you describe, Mr. Bamford, what, what Echelon was, basically the monitoring called Echelon? Yeah, Echelon uh, was the name used to uh, identify the uh, the worldwide eavesdropping operation that NSA uh, had. Uh, and what it focused on, or what Echelon was basically uh, established as, uh, was an international agency. Uh, most people don't realize it, but the, the NSA is just sort of one part of this larger worldwide eavesdropping organization um, known as Yakuza UK-USA Agreement. I'm sorry, Mr. Baver, could you repeat that? We're having trouble hearing you. Just what that was again? Yeah, it's called Yakuza UK-USA Agreement. After World War II, uh, the United States and the other uh, English-speaking countries got together um, uh, to continue the eavesdropping, the secret eavesdropping, and the way they decided to do that was to divide up the world between them. So you have the United States... Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. They all got together. And the U.S. obviously had better access to uh, South America. The U.K. had good access to Europe. Um, Australia, New Zealand had good access to parts of Asia. So they would all target these areas, and they would get together, and they decide which are the best targets, and then they'd share all the information afterwards. So... Um, that was what was known as Echelon, was the, this worldwide consortium of uh, the U.S., uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the U.K., all getting together to share the eavesdropping that they all, all do so that, you know, they're not duplicating it uh, and they're able to sort of maximize all the eavesdropping capabilities. Mr. Baffert, could you please explain what Unit 8200 is in Israel? That elite communication unit, 8200? Yeah, unit 8200 is the Israeli equivalent of NSA. So, um, basically the same type of organization. It's a, a organization that's uh, unlike the NSA, uh, which is uh, largely, well, it's about half civilian and half uh, military. Unit 8200 is all uh, Israeli military, but that's what their job is, is to develop eavesdropping equipment, and then uh, do uh, what they call signals intelligence, eavesdropping on uh, on whoever the target happens to be. You mentioned that a lot of 
obviously brilliant minds come out of Unit 8200, people like, like Kobe Alexander and Israeli companies like Converse, and that the NSA essentially was using a lot of Israeli companies to do this monitoring. And obviously that presents potential conflict with obviously Israel receiving information that the NSA has. Why would NSA be using so much, so many Israeli companies to do this sensitive work? Do you, do you know why they would be doing that? Well, they did it because uh, uh, it's sort of an odd thing, but it's sort of this roundabout way that the uh, uh, the eavesdropping technology was developed. A lot of it was developed by NSA, and some of that was uh, given to Israel. And then Israel uh, uh, developed it in 82, Unit 8200. They developed some of this technology, and a lot of it was based on uh, U.S. Uh, uh, technology that they acquired. So you have these people that are working for Unit 8200, and they're military people, so they're only there for three or four years, a lot of them. And uh, so then they leave 8200, and they know all this information about how you do deep packet inspection and how you do all this seamless intelligence, and they create a company, um, like NARIS, for example, Okay. And then they uh, they opened a company in the United States in California, and then they uh, sell it uh, sell their technology back to the NSA, and NSA buys it, and that's what they used in uh, in uh, the AT and T facility in, in uh, San Francisco, for example. So basically, the Israelis just have technology that's needed, and that's why these companies are used. Even though, ironically, we may have given it to them in the past. Yeah, I mean, it is ironic. It's, uh, you know, that the U.S. Uh, creates uh, a lot of the technology and they give it to Israel. Israel uh, sort of commercializes it and then sells it back to the U.S. It's, uh, you know, it's bizarre, but that's sort of how it worked and how it, how it worked uh, to a great degree. Maris uh, has now been bought by a U.S. company. It was bought by Boeing or one of the big uh, um, uh, defense contractors, um, and uh, so now it's it's owned by a U.S. company. But yeah, so that's sort of how it worked. Uh, there was a lot of Israeli uh, ex uh, members of the eighty two hundred that would create these uh, uh, these uh, companies that would specialize in. Eavesdropping, signals, intelligence, that kind of thing, deep packet inspections, and and uh, they today they're they're very uh, profitable. They sell this uh, this equipment and this technology and the services all over the world. Mr. Baffert, just sort of and sort of as as we wrap up here, and, and you're a general, just summing up the NSA. I, I assume you think the NSA is probably overall a needed force, but just one that has probably a need for some a lot of oversight and maybe some reforms. Are there any reforms that come to mind that you think should be implicated right away or limits on the NSA? Well, there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think, I think there was a lot that could have been done on this recent bill that they passed uh, uh, allowing NSA to do the, um, without getting into a lot of technology, uh, a lot of the eavesdropping. They, they could have put more um, safeguards in it, and they decided not to do that. Uh, I thought that was a mistake. Um, I think NSA uh, uh, gets way too much money for, for what they're able to do. Um, they aren't very good at, at 
stopping terrorism. It's bizarre. That's not what they were designed for. They were d designed to watch uh, the Soviet Union back in the Cold War to, to give early warning if the Soviet Union was going to launch a missile. I mean, that was the real reason why the agency was created. And to do that, you could eavesdrop on Russian communications fairly easily. They all went on certain communication links. They're trying to catch terrorists who use all kinds of communications all over the world, and they're all over. Uh, it's just, it's like a needle in a haystack, and they've just not been very good at it. And so uh, I think we've got to really rethink, you know, how much money we're spending for this and how much value we're getting from it. Okay. Um, and one final question. I know you had a, a meeting with Snowden a few years ago in Moscow. Could you just sum up your general feelings on Snowden? Do you think he provided a service and what he did? Yeah, I spent three days in Moscow with Ed Snowden. I was writing a cover story for Wired magazine. So uh, I uh, uh, basically hung out with him for three days and had a, you know, a good opportunity to sort of talk to him and try to find out why he did what he did and, and uh, what was going through his mind and what kind of childhood he had growing up and try to sort of find out who Ed Snowden was. And, uh, yeah, I, I, there wasn't an ounce of, uh, of self-interest in doing what he did, as far as I could see. Everything was, uh, I mean, he gave up, a, first of all, he, he didn't have a, a college education. He, he was getting $120,000 a year working for uh, a contractor, an NSA contractor in Hawaii. Booz Allen, I uh, believe, right? He had a, yeah, for Booz Allen, and, and, and he had a very attractive friend. He did all that up. I just got on a plane with a pocket full of uh, uh, thumb drives with uh, depending on who you're talking to, uh, hundreds of thousands or million or whatever uh, uh, NSA uh, documents. Um, and uh, that was... Uh, that was sort of the end of that stage of his life. At that point, he could have been arrested and uh, found a jail forever. So uh, he did it for altruistic reasons. He didn't think it was uh, right that the NSA should be illegally eavesdropping against the, the U.S. was breaking the law and doing this eavesdropping on U.S. citizens. And he became a whistleblower and decided to uh, 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 tell the world that this uh, these tell you know, everybody that this is going on. In the end, uh, after the uh, U.S. did find out about this to Snowden, the, uh, uh, there were a lot of changes made. There were laws created that uh, prevented the NSA from doing some of those things. So, um, so I think he did it for all altruistic reasons. I don't think he, uh, there's no way he benefited by this. He was living in exile without a passport in, in uh, Moscow. I'm and, uh, uh, you know, so there's no benefit for this except uh, uh, that he felt his conscience was clear by uh, alerting the public that this is going on. So I take it you would like to see him pardoned and not threatened with the Espionage Act, that draconian World War One Act for prosecution? You know, I asked him about that. I mean, I, I think it's in my article. I asked him about it, and I... Uh, he said he's willing to come to the United States and and uh, uh, serve uh, a jail time. Um, he, he doesn't want to have this uh, 
an open-ended uh, uh, thing. In other words, he wants to have uh, a plea bargain, just like uh, the U.S. does all the time uh, in courts every day. Um, so that they work it out so that he'll give himself up uh, if they if he does five years or whatever it is, something like that. And, but the U.S. doesn't want to do that. They don't want to uh, negotiate with him, so um, he is there, and he's willing to do some jail time, uh, working out a negotiation how much it would be. So he's, he, you know, he's not saying I, I should come back and just walk free. Um, but that's where the decision has to be made. I mean, how much benefit did he did he give, and uh, does the U.S. Uh, um, uh, what is the blame that the U.S. should have for creating illegal programs in the first place? So. Anyway, those are the kind of, uh, that's the calculus that has to be worked out if he's going to come back. Um, and so right now, I don't see him coming back at all. He's not, certainly not voluntarily. And uh, I haven't seen any movement by the uh, U.S. government to uh, work out a deal, either with him or with the Russians, either way. Did he seem in pretty good spirits uh, with you? And I guess you don't think he passed on any information to the Russians, I guess, in your opinion. You don't see any evidence of well, that. Well, he didn't because he uh, all that information is uh, was on uh, those flash drives. He gave the flash drives to uh, you know the, uh, various journalists, Ben uh, um, Greenwald and so forth, in um, in Hong Kong, and then he didn't have any any uh, actual documents or flash drive flash drives or, or any digital information on him when he arrived. So all he'd have would be what's in his mind. And uh, from what I understood, the Russians didn't, you know, try to get any of that information out of him. There was no real reason to because all the the information was being made public by Greenwald and, and uh, uh, the various uh, newspapers and so forth that were that had access to the actual documents. So there was no reason to sort of brainwash uh, Snowden since. The documents were, you just pick up a newspaper and read the documents. And just just one final question, Mr. Barrett. Did he seem in pretty good spirits with you, that he was at peace with what he had done? Cause obviously yeah, he no, he was uh, he was in good spirits. He, he's, uh, his girlfriend uh, uh, that he had in Hawaii, I mean, is his girlfriend that he's had, he had for 10 years before he even left. He was his girlfriend he had when he was in, uh, in Baltimore before he, went to, before he ever went to Hawaii. Uh, uh, she joined him around the time I was over there, um, which was a year after he, uh, he, he, he fled. And, uh, she's been over there ever since. So, um, uh, so yeah, he's, uh, his mood improved greatly when she came over and, uh, um, he's able to give talks, uh, in the U.S., uh, by a, you know, closed circuit television and all that, a big screen television, at different functions and things like that. So, you know, I think I think his um, mood and his uh, emotions are, are, are fairly good. Okay, well, Mr. Bamford, thank you so much for coming on and educating us about the NSA and talking about your books. I appreciate your time, and thank you again. Yeah, no problem. Thank well, you. Good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.